All right, y'all, we're going to zoom through some of this stuff. I uh, want to check, because I remember a couple of the faces, but the folks that have the physician office labs that are in here, anybody? Okay, I'm going to gear the comments both ways a little bit then, so that'll help. Um, and I'm going to uh, do a little bit of terminology update from this morning. Were all of you in the drug testing lecture from this morning, or many of you? Who was? Okay. There's a couple terms that we need to make sure we're using the most current ones, and I'm going to show those in just a second. So um, these are my disclosures, same as all the other ones. Um, these are the goals. We're going to look at some core elements of medical necessity, talk about why that applies, uh, even if you're not billing for the lab. In other words, if you're just ordering from an outside lab, medical necessity applies just like it does with a physician office lab where they earn money and you know yet you're not the one billing and there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about what can happen if you don't get the reasoning for drug testing kind of captured it has more to do with the prescribing than it does with the reimbursement in the context of the outside lab um, and then on the inside lab POL it has to do with both and either way the can of worms can get opened up uh, so we're going to look at the typical payer requirement for individualized testing, list some discussion points, and try to do this. At the end, one of the big focuses that I think is most helpful for you, regardless of your lab situation, is to have a tool that you can use to triage your results. Okay, And by triage, I mean figure out how you're going to deal with the results as they come back to you and how many of you all have interfaces with the laboratory information management system? How many of you get your stuff by fax? Okay, and you know, airmail, things like that. We have various ways of getting them. Uh, you want to have a way of picking up those results, triaging them into buckets of, you know, green, it's appropriate behavior. Yellow, we're a little bit worried about this and we want to handle it you know, quickly, and then red, like, oh my God, it's a heroin positive, we can't wait till the next visit, we need to deal with it. And you probably have something loosely, you know, around those same terms in your practice, but when we do the audits, we're actually looking at the dates, the date on the test results, the date that it comes into your chart, and the date that you actually handle it or review it. And one of the biggest things we see missing is any kind of acknowledgement by the prescriber of seeing the results. Some people are really good at initialing and dating. Some people have a system that'll do that for them with the entry in the EMR. Doesn't really matter how you do it. It's just that you wanna be able to show the trail of I saw it and I categorized it and then I acted upon it appropriately based on the category that it fell into. And so I've got a little template you can use and tailor it to your own situation. Uh, it's one that I created off of um, lots and lots of reviews and understanding of defending medical audits in this area, listening to the payers, listening to um, those that kind of influence the testing where the challenges are. So uh, why are we still talking about drug testing and why on earth is a lawyer talking to us about this stuff? If you'd asked me 30, two years ago, I guess I'm a 32-year licensed attorney, if I would learn anything about toxicology, I would have held up like this, cross, like stay away, garlic and everything, because I am not all that scientifically minded. I was horrible at chemistry, 
and it was the reason I routed away from vet school. I wanted to be a veterinarian and um, went to law school because I could write and you know argue and do all that stuff really well. But I have spent 10 plus years inside clinical laboratories, helping them with business development, helping them with legal problems, helping them with compliance, helping them interact with their clients, um, defending some of them, not all of them, some of them to payers when there's an audit, working with the physician office labs, setting up physician office labs, mostly restructuring the mess made by many of the companies that set up the labs because they don't understand the different stakeholder views. They don't understand the payer policies, the how those are interwoven with the clinical requirements, how those are interwoven with legal stuff. And, and you really do don't have that kind of a unique perspective. So having learned a lot about toxicology from the colleagues that I teach with, like Doug Gourlay and, and some of the others that have spent their time on drug testing, um, the, the, the Pain Week folks feel that this is a helpful um, perspective because it talks about documentation and gives you a little bit different twist on how risk really works if you get yourself into an audit or a challenge that involves the drug testing. So um, here's an example, failure to, to order drug tests, order clinically necessary testing. Example one, physician prescribes chronic opioid therapy without first or ever obtaining a drug test. How many people give that a thumbs down? That's bad behavior, right? Yeah, we don't do that anymore. Um, example two, physician orders only aminoassay cup testing on patients to whom he or she prescribes fentanyl, gabapentin, tramadol, and or other drugs, not necessarily all in one fell swoop. Um, so what's the problem there? What's the problem with just using a cup if you're prescribing fentanyl or gabapentin? Aminoassay, there is not in a cup the test for fentanyl or gabapentin. There's not on an analyzer the test for gabapentin, but there is one for fentanyl. Uh, there's a reagent out there, an assay for it. Uh, tramadol is the same way. There's not necessarily one on all the cups that are genuine in the market. The analyzer, you can get it depending on the company you're dealing with with reagents and laboratory developed tests. But you usually have to use a more sophisticated way of testing. So it's kind of silly to be saying they're compliant just based on a cup if you're prescribing these drugs. You'd have to go and get a more sophisticated test. Um, what are the problems and things? We're going to kind of cover. These things tend to represent um, stepping away from what would be perceived as a standard of care first. That's the big issue. And then the second issue is depending on how the testing gets ordered by that provider that's doing uh, the second thing. In the second example, they could be stacking on too many tests. They could have their own physician office lab with a chemistry analyzer, but not have a fully current test menu. And we find that all the time. They've been set up wrong. They haven't been kept current. They don't appreciate that they have the back end with the LCMS. And if they mix the apple cart up, then they might take away from money on the LCMS end, and the payers are on to that. Uh, so you've got to have that balance between keeping your POL current, and then also if you're ordering from the outside lab, you want to understand how that back plays into risk. Um, failure to timely use drug uh, results. I can't read that. I'm sorry. Um, so the example here is the physician prescribes morphine and hydrocodone to a patient who has multiple 
uh, test positive for cocaine and negative for at least one of the RX opioids, the hydrocodone. Patient has a history of UDT aberrancies that span more than two years. Each time there's an aberrancy, the patient agrees to a block or an ejection. There are no referrals in the chart. The patient was ultimately discharged for cocaine use, but not until the third urine test positive for cocaine. This is a true case. It's an audit we just finished. We saw this over and over and over and over and over again with one specialist in a specialty practice. And, you know, you don't see the pattern when you're the person that's doing it, right? Because I don't know that this is intentional. I think that this is just what happens. And yet cocaine doesn't just happen and it has to be dealt with. And so then it becomes a lot more serious. And so if in the ordering of the testing, the payer decided to audit it, this opens the can of worms to the prescribing. So there's a problem for that particular provider. They were using an out-of-office um, lab, so they didn't have their own lab. If they had their own lab, then it becomes an even bigger problem if they're not paying attention. The bigger problem is the fraud because you're doing the testing, getting the money, doing the, the back end on the controlled substance prescribing. And those two things happen a lot more often than you might think, and it's the reason we're still talking about a lot of this. So... Um, the general background and the things that I wanted to kind of update, it's not that, um, and, and Mark and I, again, know each other really well. My comments are not meant to disparage him in any way, shape, or form. This world of drug testing and billing and coding and test methodology and test cutoff levels and test menus, you got to be in it every day to understand the magnitude of the changes and then understand the import of the changes as it affects everything that you do on a daily basis. And not everybody is involved in that. I just happen to be somebody that works almost every day in that environment. So I, I wanted to make sure you're using the correct stuff. So he was using the word screening and then testing instead of confirmation, right? He used screen and he used test and he used that under the umbrella urine drug monitoring. The correct terminology today is presumptive testing which is encompassing screening, and then definitive testing, which encompasses the more sophisticated measure of the analyte in the urine that's been found positive, but the measures a creatinine normalized value. And so why is that important? Because, and there's a whole big couple of pages that was published by the American Medical Association CPT, Current Procedural Terminology Workgroup um, Lab, that told why they were changing this. And it had to do with test methodology and the fact that screening wasn't just amino assay anymore. And Mark pointed that out. He showed you GC or LCMS, but there needs to be a little more emphasis on that for you so that you understand the difference in those uh, as it pertains to use of presumptive testing. So an amino assay is a presumptive test. It's looking at the class, not the specific analytes. There are a couple of reagents or assay uh, tests that look more particularly like, example, fentanyl or at hydrocodone. Uh, that's on an analyzer, not on a cup right now. Um, but it cannot test for many, many, many drug classes and many specific analytes. Then, you know, and then the cup is even lower in what it can look for. And so those two things fall here. Over here, 
and under the um, coding definition, and I'll show you that descriptor in a minute, it actually includes liquid chromatography with or without mass spectrometry. Gas chromatography is pretty much out of the picture, except for certain weirdo drugs that the old methodologies in place uh, for drugs that are a little bit particular. And um, some labs will use GC, some labs won't. It just depends on how they've developed their methods, the standards that they're using, and their dedication and sophistication to this area. But you can do an LCMS presumptive test and get 50 plus analytes specific for the same cost as the chemistry analyzer. And many of you are probably having your, your drugs sent out to Quest or LabCorp and their platform, it's not wrong, it's just their platform, is do the screen and then do the confirm off of that, right? Or the, the definitive test off of that. And that's different in the way that it comes out cost-wise than when the LCMS is done on the front end. So there are uh, probably one or two labs across the country that do the presumptive LCMS and it is billed the same way as the amino assay, and I'll show you the cost on that. The definitive testing was called confirmation, and that was a little bit of a, of a mislabel. And even I used that because I was going off the, the terms that were in the current CPT code because that's how we have to talk, and then we change those for purposes of making it very clear that definitive testing, depending on the method used on the front end, the presumptive test, um, might actually be a confirmation. So if the presumptive test is a cup amino assay and it's positive for oxycodone, you got to go ask about that test on an LCMS if you have a patient that's used oxymorphone in the past, if you want to see the metabolites, oxycodone to oxymorphone to nor-oxycodone, if you want to distinguish the use of oxycodone from oxymorphone, there are reasons to go over and confirm that you're really dealing with oxycodone. Um, on the other hand, not everything is a confirmation of the positive. If you have a presumptive LCMS, you could see the oxycodone specifically. You could see the oxymorphone specifically. But what you can't normally see because of the standards in using LCMS as presumptive is you can't see that super metabolite, the noroxycodone. So you would have to go up and do a low-level LCMS definitive test to confirm the value of those drugs in the system. And then you could determine, um, you know, loosely if the person was really taking the oxycodone on a chronic basis versus making an effort to fool you because they've got all parent, no metabolite, you know, or flipped around, right? So um, it allows you to see some things a little differently. And that's a very, very much a generalization. It's a lot more sophisticated than it sounds. But it basically, the LCMS moves everything up front on the presumptive side and then minimizes the cost on the back end. So here's the code, the CPT descriptors, and Mark put those up earlier. This is the one that is used to bill an analyzer and an LCMS in a presumptive role. Or some people will use laser diode, thermodesorption, LDTD, uh, MALD, time of flight, TOF. They, they, it depends on the lab and you know, what they're, what they're doing in the presumptive role. But many people are looking at this because really it's about the questions that you're asking. 
If you're asking questions and your question is, I need to know if Mrs. Jones is using the drug that I'm prescribing, an amino assay may not be able to answer that. But the LCMS and the presumptive role and the tag to the back end will be able to answer that, as long as the test menu is meeting your needs, right? Um, so this is the descriptor that shows that it's allowed. And this is the code that gets billed for the point-of-care cup. This is a point-of-care cup plus a little reader. They use those in emergency departments a lot of times. Um, so this is the code we're going to focus on for a minute. And these are the current prices. This is 2019 quarter three pricing. Uh, what you saw earlier this morning is 2018. The 2019 data comes out in November of the year before. It's been out for quite some time. And this is the Medicare reimbursement. So if somebody bills Medicare for an 80307, the reimbursement on that presumptive test, whether it's amino assay done or LCMS done, the reimbursement Medicare makes is $64.65. Now let me tell you what labs do with that. So laboratories that are independent laboratories will have, just like you do in your practices, they have a multiplier that they use to make their retail charge, right? And the standard in the industry is generally somewhere between two and four times Medicare. So let's make this $60 just because my brain's not going to work to try to calculate $65 right now. Um, well, it will. So if a lab uses two times multiplier, 60 times two is 120, right? And that's the bill that should come to you for that 80307. We're going to build on that and show you how labs got to these crazy high-end prices so that you can discern when you get some of these bills your patients are bringing to you, and you see thousands of dollars on the bill, somebody doesn't know what they're doing, and somebody's outside the standard, and that can better help you evaluate. You know, you may, not, you may have your hands tied because of contracts, and everybody understands that, and I'm not trying to argue against it, but you need to have some appreciation of the pricing that's in here. You all do the same thing when it comes to your particular services that you price. Um, in 2016, and this is how we're going to build to the expense of the back-end LCMS definitive testing and why some of these things make a difference. When the AMA CPT code published this overhaul, they identified, I think it's like 33, 35 classes that loosely relate to toxicology. And I think about 33 of them actually relate to typical pain management practices uh, you, you may not be doing steroid testing. That can come in, but it's, it's not typical. And these are the classes. And the challenge with this is that this classification of drug classes actually cultivates higher billing. And the reason for that is how they gave some of the opioids or opiate drugs, things in that category, their own test code. Because every one of these classes has its own code when you go up to do definitive testing or LCMS quantification. Um, and so let me show you what that looks like. So the way that it's counted in the pricing on the back end, the definitive testing, is one to seven classes. So if you picked the first seven here, or whatever that is, wherever you stop, one to seven, the Medicare reimbursement rate is $114 and 43 cents. You know, if you take it and round it and take it times two, a lab using a two multiplier, you get the retail value of that. So if you use a lab that has a two multiplier on the outside 
and they're doing presumptive to definitive testing in a tier one, this is called a tier, um, then you're probably around 350 bucks, right, thereabouts. That's what the test should cost. That's what should be on the bill, right? And then the insurance comes in and does what it does. If it's Medicare, it's only going to pay what the fee schedule says. If it's commercial, it's all over the map. But how do you get to the $800 bill or the $900 bill or the $1,000 bill? You get that because the older standard of amino assay to LCMS, most of the labs walk around and say, well, you can't do this on the amino assay, so you have to add it in on your LCMS. You can't do that on the amino assay, so you have to add it in on your LCMS. You can't see this. You don't know this for sure, so you have to add it in on your LCMS. And you end up in these higher tiers with the multiplier. You get that? Okay. I'll show you a little more in a minute, but that's the basic of this. And it's true, the labs that contract will contract for lower figures, but there are other complications with some of those that relate to the amount of drug information you're getting on your report. There are reports out there from some companies, and you've got to watch for this. You may not be in cardiology. You may be somebody that's focused in a different area. You may be a family physician that's prescribing a cardiology drug and also prescribing um, pain medicine, and that's a different story. But for pain specialists that don't typically prescribe blood pressure medicine, you're getting reports that have blood pressure medicine on it. What the heck? That's outside the scope of your practice, yet that report is sitting in your EMR and that could be an issue, right? So coordination of care becomes a challenge there. And so you want to just be tuned in. I'm not saying that what they're doing is wrong. I'm just saying that probably nobody's explained to you from a legal risk perspective that that may be outside your scope. And what are you going to do with it? You can't ignore it, right? It's a report coming into your chart. you got to be able to say and send this report off to you know, specialists send it to family medicine or whoever they know to be prescribing that or tell your lab don't do it because you don't want it on there. That's not your job. Same thing can happen with mental health medicines. A lot of labs offer that. And some people say behavioral health, we got to look and make sure they're taking it all. That's great. That's fine if you want to do that. But if you do that, you need to look at the reports and make sure that the medicine that's showing up from a behavioral health perspective is the medicine the patient's actually being prescribed, and you can't tell whether they're taking it appropriately, but you can sure coordinate care, not just stick it in there, right? Because a lot of times they're taking a different behavioral health medicine that they've accumulated and not the one that's being prescribed. That's why you'll get people showing up with a bunch of different stuff over time that are high-risk behaviorally, and they're on antipsychotics and antidepressants and anti-whatever-else is in there for that category of medicine. So you've got to remember that this information that comes in on these reports, not only is the choice of the outgoing test important, but the information coming in is super critical. Um, so here's the, a trouble with the classification system. There are nine drug classes that relate loosely to opioids, opiates, and analogs, antagonists, things that come under that umbrella. Nine, right? That's what AMA set up. Well, that's not tier one, is it? That's tier two. So the way the AMA classification system is, just in the old-fashioned testing, if you will, it sends you right into the second tier, 
And then you got to account for what's going on in the patient's life. And that's why these things have ended up so expensive. And that's why looking at other options available to you, now you'll have a little bit more understanding of, of you know, what to look for, what to ask about. It's really important to do that because the payers are going, uh, we're not going to pay for this one anymore. We're not going to pay for this one anymore. And they're forcing it down to here. And you guys are going, time out. We're not getting our questions answered because we need to look at 15 drug classes. And you just told me you couldn't pay for it. What are we going to do? And so some people that have physician office labs are running all the tests anyway. And, you know, because it's less expensive to do that than flip it around. But then the payers are going to start not paying for the LCMS if the presumptive isn't done right. So it goes back to the setup of the POL to begin with. Same thing happening with independent labs using the amino acid to LCMS platform. But when you take and load your LCMS presumptive on the front end, you can get answers to 50 plus analytes depending on the lab that has that set up and then you don't have to ask a question past here. Okay? See the difference? So you've got a controlled cost feature. And again, that's something that's, that's coming. That's something that some, a couple labs have. So it's not fully out there yet, but it's something that if you understand that and you can start understanding what questions to ask and how to really look at this drug testing equation. So there's nine of those. There's seven common illicit. There's eight of the behavioral health related. These are loosely classified by me. Um, and this is why we have this trouble with this AMA system right now. So maybe they'll fix it, and I think ultimately they'll come down to we don't care how many drugs you test for. We're only going to use one code for presumptive and one code for definitive. Or they'll leave the three codes on the presumptive side for cup and cup with reader and presumptive amino assay, presumptive LCMS or whatever, and then only have one code on the back side of it where they don't care. And then that, that eliminates some of the stuff that you guys encounter all the time practice, how many people have lab people come and visit them all the time, or try to? Yeah? Anybody? They come in, they knock, they want to come in and present. Everybody's got something that's better than somebody else. Well, some people do, and that's fine, but um, what you need to remember is that there's reasonings and things that are really, that look really nice that may not be that nice, um, and we'll show you a couple of those in a second. So these are the code. This is an example of uh, Cigna's policy. Um, I accessed it on August 27th of this year. Um, this policy non-covers tier three and four. So what it says down here is considered not medically necessary. Drug test, LCMS, definitive, blah, 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 15 to 21 drug classes. And this is the one that's 22 or more. A lot of the lab stuff that you're getting and giving that one checkbox to because you set up your custom profile <laughs> is in the no zone. And they know it. They know it. They want to give you the, the answers to your questions. They're going to take the loss on the back end and they want to get you as the customer. And that's called a potential, underlying potential inducement because the rest of the stuff has to be added up to see if it's really a kickback. And the payers know this, the prosecutors know this, and you know, the labs know a lot about that. And so you've got to be careful about what you're receiving. And most of you, the way I would take it would be, I don't give a rat's butt what you do on your end lab that's billing. I just want the questions answered here. 
and I want my patients treated fairly, and I don't want these crazy bills. And some people, practitioners, will go as far as to say, if you bill my patients, I won't use you. Don't say that. Don't say that. Because what they're going to do in response is, oh, don't worry about it. We send them some paper airplanes, but they never really end up having to pay for it in the end. That's a kickback. It's illegal. It's unlawful to do that. They have to have a real structure for financial hardship. And they have to have that two to four standard. They should have the two to four standard. There's no law that requires it. But that's where the industry is. And people that are going up to the eight, nine, ten times Medicare are normally really new labs that don't have a good feel for how this works and their system's set up differently. And that's where those bills come in, and those are the people that are likely to throw the paper airplanes and get you in trouble. A real financial hardship setup says we're going to bill the insurance. If insurance doesn't cover and there's patient left over because of deductible or whatever, we're going to bill them, but we're going to give them a financial policy that shows that they can get into hardship. They, can, they may not have to play, but they have pay for anything, but they have to qualify for that, just like you all do. Payment plans, right? Payment options, things like that. Percentage reductions that are reasonable, that are based on a, a prompt pay, stuff like that. That's the framework that's legal. The other framework is subtly sort of one foot in legal, but the other side of it is to try to get your business. And in the end, that doesn't always look good if there's an audit that goes to the medical necessity of the charting. They're going to look at your records. They're going to look at your records, and that's why you want to just be aware of it. I'm not trying to say you have to do any one thing. I just think a lot of times you're not given this information, and that power comes with information, and then you can do what you want to with it. So what's in a lab test menu? This is one that I pulled off a form that a doctor gave me in late July, and it's still circulating out there by an independent lab. And when you look at this form, you see how many groupings of drugs, opiates, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Looks like 15 classes would check box, right? Now, based on what you just learned, you think that's the case? If you went through and even checked... Um, Say you wanted opiates, semi-synthetic opiates, synthetic opiates, you go down that class, you're not, it might look like you checked the first three boxes and even the fourth box, and you might look like you're in tier one, but when you go and realize how they count these things, you're actually already in tier two. Sometimes they set it up and here's the individuals, you're like, I don't want to check all those dang boxes, I can't even, you know, I don't have time to read that. Set me up something so I can check one box. That's your custom profile, right? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do for all my patients. No, no, no. The payer policies say no, no, no. It has to be individualized. So when they do that for you, if you counted all of these, you're well into Tier 4. Okay? And that's how you end up with high testing, and that's why this amino assay to LCMS and custom profiles and make things easier has made a mess of all of this for you. It's really not your fault, but it's, it's helpful to understand so that you can not get boxed into a corner. Positivity rates, Mark mentioned those earlier this morning. 
But they're not just like published data out there, some maps that Quest or somebody put out there. What it is is a profile of your practice for what's going on from presumptive testing to LCMS testing or straight LCMS testing. And it's going to tell you and tell you a, almost a profile of your practice. We can tell by looking at them off of the instrumentation from the POL instrumentation or the independent lab instrumentation, which drugs you prescribe the most and which drugs are a problem in your practice by looking at you know, the elicits and other things like that in your area and region. And why is that important? It relates to medical necessity. Medical necessity is the, related first to the individual patient, their history of drug use, the drugs you're prescribing to them, the drugs you commonly prescribe in your practice, and then other stuff that is a problem in the region. So you, some people may have problems with kratom, other people may have problems with ketamine. And that's when you need to make arguments about this is the profile we set up for new patients. It's going to have a robust value to it. And then this is the profile that we set up as we do our risk stratification. And it's true that you go up with your high behavioral risk people on other drugs, but it's not true that you go up in drug test tiers for the people that are high medical risk without the behavioral issue. So that payers know that, and that's what they're looking for. What is needed for this individual? Um, and so these things are relevant to help you understand that. So here's some core elements of medical necessity. It comes from these standards and policies and payer things and blah, blah, blah. It's usually easiest to pick up a payer policy, and they're, they're not really fully common sense right now. There's some errors in many of them, but they're closer to reality than they were three or four years ago. And sometimes the payers, especially for frequency, sorry, individualization of the patient's history with what's being prescribed and kind of what's going on in the community, that goes to the test menu. But the individualization of the patient history with your risk stratification and analysis, that works with your test frequency. And sometimes your licensing board test frequency is more than the payer standard. Example is Georgia, Dr. Dunbar. So Georgia has the test four times a year in the, in the licensing board requirement, right? But a policy may say you can't test this patient four times a year, right? And so South Carolina has similar things, and you know North Carolina has similar things. So you've got that in all parts of that area of the country. North Carolina is more general in the drug testing frequency. Uh, South Carolina has a periodically term, but Georgia has that rule of four times per year, and it goes up against the payer. Blue Cross of Georgia, as an example, um, doesn't want to pay for definitive testing, and that kind of flies in the face of what the board says. And so most of you will not face that problem, but there are some challenges like that, and it's a kind of important to sort it out. Yes, sir? That's a great question, if, insurance commissions, and it's something that I have pushed back on in some of these audits. Um, a payer, theoretically, according to ERISA law, a payer's protected under ERISA. It's an umbrella, okay, the Employment, Employment Retiree Income Security Act. I don't know why they put them under there, but they did. 
and they're protected so long as they're not cultivating negligent standard or policy. And when their policy conflicts with state law, some of the payers have gotten smart in their drug testing policies and said, um, you know, whichever one is more, it's either our policy or the state law, whichever one is more would be apply. Those are the smart ones. The ones that continue to fight about frequency in the face of somebody that's trying to do this the right way and a state licensing board authority like Georgia, for example, that says four times per year, you could do some heavy-duty pushback on that, and lawyers will often get into that kind of a, really, you want to go down that road? Let's talk about what that might look like for you. And normally those things don't get brought to task in a lawsuit because they get worked out and settled out um, because it is a way of pushing back on the payer. Um, and so you are 100% right that there is some potential for culpability there. And it's always important that if you get a letter from the payer that says you're testing this patient too frequently, if you're in a state that has a higher frequency, then cite that back in a letter. That's easy. If you're in a state that doesn't do a lot about it and you're following a particular resource to come up with your risk levels, you know, low, moderate, high medical, high behavioral, and then you have your frequency of testing policy alongside of that, and the payer's like, we're not doing it, then that's the source that you could send back to them. And those things are not universal across this country. The numbers that were shown this morning are actually very low, and from older literature in the Mayo article that he cited. That was from 2008. There are many, many articles that have come out since then that have kind of changed the frequency of testing. And there are payer policies that are using things that are like one to two times per year on low risk, you know, two to four on moderate, four to six on high risk. There are payers that have, will allow 12 a year. So it really depends on the discipline. And so that's, a, again, an excellent point. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, payers want you to test the drugs that are likely to be present based on patient history. And you're like, I want to test all the drugs possible to avoid abuse and diversion. And those things don't jive, right? And so that's why this test methodology thing is important to you and whether or not whatever lab world you're working in allows you to do that LCMS on the front end so you can ask all the questions you want, minimize the cost, get the answers, and move on because you really don't have this much time to spend on this stuff, right? Um, and so we're getting there, but we're not there yet. Payers have definitions of medical necessity, normally referencing prevailing standards of care, and in an area like this, there's no universal agreement on it other than it needs to be done. Uh, here's an example of Cygnus, talking about medical necessity in general. You can read that one later. But it's basically, you know, something that's generally accepted, uh, clinically appropriate, and you're going to use it in the treatment of the patient. That's the important thing. You're going to use it, and that's the triage on the other end. Uh, here are the Medicare reg regulations and requirements for lab test orders and who has to order. And, you know, Medicare doesn't have a signature requirement, but they have a you must document it as the ordering practitioner requirement or treating practitioner. And document it doesn't mean UDT today. It means let's, we're doing a drug test for this patient for the reason, okay? And we're going to order these drugs. And you can template that to a large degree. You just have to be aware that there's more involved in medical necessity than what is brought to you commonly by sales representatives from laboratories. 
So don't, you know, when you get into questioning about, I, do, I don't have to sign that, I have to sign that, or why do I have to sign it? Why do I have to write that down? Why do I have to check this box? The answer is because of medical necessity. That's the short answer. The long answer is, well, they're going to look at all of our paperwork, our order forms, your documentation in the chart, our test results, your response to the test results. They're going to look at that continuum, and when you understand that, then I think you can have some better insight and paperwork uh, ideas that make it a little easier. So you can still not spend a ton of time on it, but so that you have um, a better chance of uh, surviving an audit if there is one that relates to medical necessity for a POL, and then just so that you don't open a can of worms on yourself if the lab gets audited. Um, and so here's an example of the government's perspective on medical necessity. This is pulled from that McCullum case that I cited earlier this morning. I'm not going to go through all these slides. You can read them on your own. But what I want you to see is that in this thing that was filed in May, this is the pending whistleblower case, not the criminal investigation, they talk, they, the government, talk about medical necessity. So here's what the pending case looks like on the civil side. And this is 115 pages, this complaint. And a lot of it deals with drug testing. So um, you'll have the, the link, or I can, I think I uploaded it so you can get it. The um, problem here dealt with Medicaid and medical necessity. And they talk about medically necessary, meaning that the service uh, is directed toward the maintenance, improvement, or protection of health, or toward the diagnosis and treatment of illness or disability. Okay, well, all right, that's fine. What else? Um, and here it has to do with timeliness, as you'll see. And this is a little tougher, but look at what they go through. I'm not going to read all of this. Look at urine drug testing overview, regulatory requirements, Medicare regulations. They cite the specific code. Clinical lab services must also be promptly, um, must be used promptly by the physician who is treating the beneficiary. In order to assess whether those services are reasonable and necessary, whether reimbursement is appropriate, you requ they require proper documentation. They're giving you the information in there. So you can read this in the materials that are, that are posted online, and if you want me to email you a copy, I can email you a copy of this. But this is a lot of detail. Um, and so what they, we flip this around, and these are from their pages and the rest of the complaint right there as cited. There's no individual assessment regarding the drug test menu. They view that as medically unnecessary. So those of you with POLs really should pay attention to this because this was first a physician office lab issue, and then this guy also got his own independent lab issue and spread the virus over because it wasn't set up right to begin with. Okay? Um, and those of you on the outside ordering, you know, I don't mean there's anything wrong with that, but those of you ordering from outside laboratories, uh, here it's more about the emphasis on the use and the selection and documentation. It's the lab that would get audited, but in auditing they go ask for your charts and they come to you a lot of the times. And then somebody, some investigator who's normally a nurse and pretty sharp at it, goes, not only do they have a problem with the medical necessity documentation, but they have a problem with the prescribing. And so the can of worms gets open. And that's why making sure that you can do your best to control some of these things on the front end is, is helpful, to just be aware of them. Um, 
and then failure to consider the roles. Those, all these things are things I've already said. Uh, here's a big one that always gets people. Seeking LCMS definitive testing of negative immunoassay results even when the negatives were consistent with clinical explanation or expectation. Here's an example, cocaine. Cocaine, if it's positive on a cup, it's probably benzylalkylene. Well, I didn't say that right, but you know what I'm talking about, the metabolite of cocaine. Um, and if it's positive on amino assay, it's the metabolite of cocaine. And so if it's negative, it's probably not there unless it's way under a cutoff and you're dealing with a new patient or somebody really trying to fool you. So if the person has a sketchy history, high behavioral risk, you can justify doing a definitive test of a negative cocaine a little more readily than you could in a low-risk patient that never has had any history of doing anything. It's possible that they're using cocaine. You could always have a mistake, but if you have a pedigree of negatives on cocaine, then you can't keep sending that over just for the sake of it to cover your hind end. That's medical necessity. I'm not saying that we could never come up with a fact pattern. Please understand the difference. Payer perspective, the first part of what I described. Provider perspective, I gotta know for sure, but we gotta find that middle ground, and the middle ground is the individual history of the patient and where you are with them in the treatment. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, and and which uh, MAC Medicare Administrative Contractor? All right, that's important because the origin origin of understanding the right way to do that, which is allow it to go over. From, it sounds like it's an amino assay, right? Because an LCMS would have picked up that hydrocodone versus the tramadol on the front end, right? The analyzer, you could pick it up on the front end if you had hydrocodone and tramadol on your analyzer, but you don't. And so maybe that's why they're forcing it. Maybe or look into other test methods, and those are things that should be investigated. Because, you know, laboratory, you have a high-complexity lab, you have moderate. Yeah, there's a lot of people running around shopping. Let's set you up with a moderate POL. And, and that's creating another whole host of issues, a completely different lecture. But if you have a high-complexity lab and you've got the people that can go get those reagents for fentanyl and hydrocodone, you can get those. You may have to do a lab-developed test for the tramadol, and you may have to do a little lab-developed test to make sure that the assay is accurate on the fentanyl and the hydrocodone. Your, your amino assay is normally done um, all at one time on the wheel. They just test independently. The LCMS, you should be able to order a la carte. And if you just want to check on the hydrocodone because the opiate's positive, then you want the opiates on the LCMS because they're going to look for hydrocodone and its metabolites. But you got to be careful because some of the labs running around out there are not testing the NOR metabolites. They're testing, you know, hydrocodone and hydromorphone, and hydromorphone is a major metabolite of hydrocodone, but nor hydrocodone would help distinguish hydromorphone use from hydrocodone use. Did I get that right? Yeah, okay. So, you know, and some labs don't test nor hydromorphone, and that's not as necessary as the nor hydrocodone. 
So these nor metabolites are something you should be looking for. And when you've got presumptive LCMS on the front end, you only have to go to that one to seven classes. You've got a lot of room to add in some stuff because it doesn't change the price. But if you have the amino assay that's imperfect on the front end, then you've got to be a little more creative about going to the back end because of medical necessity. And that's what's happening, and that's where the changes are going on right now. So this is still a really current discussion regarding lab test methodology. And some people will come in and go, oh, no, presumptive LCMS is bunk. No, it's not. It's covered by the AMACPD descriptor. There's been all kinds of testing that's been done on the front end using um, definitive test methodology in a presumptive capacity. What happens is they use, it's, it's not like they use different standards, like one's better than the other, but they might use three standards to do the presumptive LCMS that gets the bulk of the 51 analytes specifically. But then they got to go to a higher number of standards, slow down the noise that happens when you test a lot of drugs together or get certain classes that react funky when you test them with other drugs like antipsychotics and do a separate set of standards with that. So you'll see that the labs doing the presumptive LCMS have that all worked out so that you're getting definitive answers. You just don't get the numbers on the presumptive side of the house. You really don't need them if you've got the specific analyte. The number is the, the, the tier one uh, definitive test, and that gives you question marks about is the person really taking their medicine, shaving it, you know, taking it right before, what are they doing with it, or are, is there a metabolic problem potential with how they're processing drugs, or do we need the antipsychotics or something like that. It's a little variable between the labs that do that, but that's the general idea. Uh, here's more routine ordering without individual assessment is medically unnecessary. Uh, basically, and this is where the real problem is here. This, how many of you all are employed by a company and not the owner of the company? Okay. So in this case, and this is why you should read this, this, and this is a little more complicated than just drug testing. This guy had employment agreements with physicians and nurse practitioners that involved some payment based on volume of testing. And some of the, the clinicians that got caught up in this as employees were not over-ordering the testing. They were really trying to do the right thing, and so the government has made them witnesses in the criminal investigation. But some of them had such high packages of compensation that they're kind of caught up in the civil whistleblower lawsuit, and nobody knows how that's going to fall out yet. So your compensation agreement's tied to any laboratory is something that you should be clued into. Most of you probably don't have that as part of it. That's fine. That's good. But the, the, the physician office lab groups that do have compensation agreements with their partners and they have that physician office labs need to be very, very careful about that and make sure those documents are written appropriately. This, doc, this thing has a ton of discussion about that in there. And so that's part of what happens here. Um, so there's a lot to read. I just don't, I don't want to spend any more time on it. You get it. Uh, the government goes through and talks about some of the standing orders for custom profiles. A standing order traditionally is I want Jennifer to have her PTINR tested, you know, blah, 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 as we're doing whatever. And it's going to apply for a couple of months, and then it might, will apply, like, forever, okay, if depending on the drug take, taken. Um, 
And so it, there's, it, there's a real specific reason for that. A standing order with a custom profile of the same set of drugs of abuse for every patient is no-go, okay? The policies say no-go. And that if you use a custom profile, it has to be set up on these individual circumstances of the, the characterization of the patient status. So status is low risk, the test menu is going to be relatively, you know, very low. Status is high behavioral risk, the test menu is going to be more expansive, but before you go there, the testing is actually going to be more frequent, and the menu may bounce around a little bit depending on the answers that you get to the questions you're asking. So the, the government's trying to talk about this, and they kind of mess some stuff up a little bit because they're not exactly using, it's the same thing like with me talking. I'm shifting back and forth between terminology a little bit. Nobody's perfect. They're trying to do and describe the problem with medical necessity, but they shift some terminology a little bit that shows that they're just not as familiar with it as they probably should be, but they're not wrong either um, on some of this stuff. So you'll see some specific examples in here, and I think that it would be interesting to read that. Um, so let's go forward then. And this is the typical um, way, this is the old way <laughs> and the wrong way of individualizing. Um, increased number of drugs tested via LCMS with each risk level. That fails to recognize the need for properly structured amino assay test menu. It fails these things and it often does some things and it largely ignores positivity rates. That's where they zap you with a POL, by the way. They'll go get your positivity rates and zeros in a lot of the stuff that's always been on your menu and always build. Zero positives across all your population. I saw one positivity rate package recently, 27,000 specimens, okay? And they sorted out, it was over time, but they sorted over a year. They sorted it out and they had zero cocaine, zero ketamine, zero meparidine, zero, 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 zero on a lot of the drugs. Does that mean you don't test for them? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it has to make sense to the individual patient as to when you test for them. So a person that has a pedigree of negatives, let's say for cocaine, it doesn't mean you don't do a once a year or twice a year for cocaine um, because that's something that's so across a prevalent in our, our country that that's more realistic. But ketamine and, you know, do you really need to test the ketamine if you're the one giving them a ketamine in, um, infusion? Well, you know you're putting it into their system. You know, what is that information going to give you? you? You've got to have something that makes sense. It's not that you can't do it, but you have to explain why that would make sense if you're the one introducing the ketamine and you're right there introducing it, right? That's a little different testing platform than a high behavioral risk person who has a history of poly drug, substance use disorder or substance abuse and you want to look a lot more broadly because you're in an area where ketamine is widely available. Maybe you're in a rural area where a lot of people get it for their livestock. We've got ketamine. Yeah, we use it for horse castrations. But we use it with our vet present, right? And, you know, there's not any issue because of how it's handled. But there are people that will get diverted. They'll get tramadol from their vets. They'll get all kinds of things like that. So it depends on your circumstance. Uh, so you can read those checklists. Let me see, I don't even remember what this was. Probably too complicated for what time of day it is. Um, this menu represents 23 drug classes. I remember that part. If you counted them all up. Oh yeah, I remember what this is. So this one has 
order test confirming all, and you could make a little checkbox right here, or you could go through and try to individually check. And then they have this authorization down here that's kind of interesting. And this is the part that gets people when it comes to medical necessity. I authorize this lab to perform drug testing on all specimens as follows. You're allowed to quantify all positive point of care results. You might need it, you might not need it. Uh, quantify negative point of care test results as indicated. So you either go through and make the indication, which takes a little longer, or you fall into the one checkbox problem that has created the medical necessity issue. You gotta read what you're saying that you're doing, because it's on your shoulders for medical necessity, and this one slides some stuff by after you check the whole box. Now you don't have to, they'll give you this, but they're not telling you that some of these things are extra drug classes, and I guarantee you, in most practices that do pain management, family medicine, MDPV isn't going to come up, but it's a synthetic that gets an extra chip for money purposes to the lab, but your positivity rates are going to be low. Same with JWH018, uh, you know, you look into bath salts and some of the other stuff. There are pockets of this country where that's absolutely a risk. People that are in substance uh, use disorder treatment, you're going to want to do that on the front end, but you got to get that, that history of that patient in there and then decide how to work that into your test menus. Um, so it, it kind of varies. So you can ask yourself the questions there, and, and I'm sure you'll pick up on what I was trying to make here. Uh, I already talked about that, the not in your scope of practice drug test results. You want to read more about CMS requirements for individualized testing, especially those of you with uh, physician office labs. This is a good handout. I uploaded that, and I tried to highlight the areas to read. Um, this is how you really kind of basic checklist for individualization. The medication list is really important. You want to talk about a major mess up in test reports, it's right there, right? So the medication list in EMRs is a nightmare to keep up with. You got a current medication list, you got the historical medication list. And depending on who's going to grab the medication list to give it to the lab to accompany the drug test order, it may or may not be current, right? And then the question is, do you list everything known to man or do you list just the drugs that are controlled or how do you do all of that? And whatever goes over, if it's not right, what's going to happen on the end and the results with the way some labs publish their test results is an opinion or a judgment about whether that result is compliant or non-compliant and a lab shouldn't be giving that opinion in its test results. Why not? That's your job. And if they give the wrong opinion and you don't pick up on it, and that ends up in the chart, it perpetuates problems. And it doesn't matter what direction it goes, it can be false and misleading either way, right? And tell them you don't want it on there. Tell them you want detected or not detected, okay? They should not give compliant or non-compliant. They shouldn't give, what's the other one they use? I can't think of Consistent or inconsistent. With what? The treatment plan. Well, they don't know. That's not their treatment plan. That's your judgment. Detected not detected. That's the clean lab way with it, and most good lab directors will agree with that. They, they can, you know, some people will argue, well, we can help you with the interpretation by highlighting the results. That's different, but it's that judgment that is a problem. And I think most of the labs have cleaned that up, but there's still some new ones that enter in that come in and go, hey, look, our test reports are really great. They tell you all this stuff, and you're like, nope. I don't want you labeling my patient because it's going to follow and haunt them and you 
eventually, right? It may not, but it will at some point. Um, creating a physician-directed custom test profile. You know, can you create those? New patient, there's the examples I put down here. New patient, established, low, moderate, high medical. These two are hard to distinguish, right? That's going to be depending on the facts. These are a little easier. The high medical is going to look like a low risk patient most of the time in terms of tiers. Remember, one to seven, eight to 14 classes if you're doing the, the standard amino assay to LCMS. But if you're fortunate to run around in the, the region where the labs operate with the LCMS on the front end, you don't have to worry about that as much because you get to ask those questions at the same price and then it ends up cheaper. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Um, so you can read through that. And then I wanted to show you some workflow challenges. This is pretty um, obvious. So the provider determines the need for a test. An order is generated. It's usually EIA presumptive to LCMS definitive or LCMS presumptive with a controlled tier one. It's usually this, and the tier that that goes to is usually at least a two and probably a three, and the threes are usually non-covered. So you end up with some challenges right off the back. Tests performed and reports released, provider reviews in a timely fashion using triage. That's how Cytosorn is supposed to go, okay? And... This is something that you can look as workflow that I just did in a mind map, and you can read through that. I'm not going to go that. I want to go into the triage thing and close out on that. Um, I want to say something about reflex so that you understand. A physician office lab cannot reflex its results under most payer policies. You can't go automatic from analyzer to LCMS. If you get audited and you have all, most of the major payers in your, your reimbursement system, you're going to have problems because you're supposed to look at the results of the analyzer and decide about your LCMS test. That's the problem with that setup there. If you send everything out to an independent lab, they can reflex because they have to do what's necessary to fulfill your test order. And that's where people that you know cultivate the test everybody at the highest level can have an issue, but you can also control it to test the right amount on the reflex with an outside lab. So the presumptive LCMS to tier one is all outside with an auto reflex and that's okay. Um, but you could also ask them not to. You could ask them, I wanna look at this first before we do it. Some will do it, some won't do it. It just depends on the situation. Um, but reflexing is allowed with all outside lab utilization. It's generally not allowed with physician office labs. And a lot of people will say, well, it never came up in the audit. It kind of depends on the sophistication of the auditor, but the policies, many of them out there actually say no reflex in physician office lab. And I think there's one or two Medicare administrative contractors that do that as well. I can't think of the one off the top of my head, but I know there's at least one. So those are just idea things. So um, if you have a physician office lab, immunoassay to LCMS, determine the need for the test, generate the order for the presumptive immunoassay, perform the amino assay, release the reports in a timely fashion, decide if you need LCMS, perform the LCMS, and then the final report comes in. And most people will go, Jennifer, we're not gonna make a determination on the amino assay. And the payer comes back and they smack you and they say, then why are you billing us for it? If you're not making any decision about it. 
And obviously, you're not making any decision about the prescribing of the drug with your amino assay unless you get those results while the patient is in the practice. And that's why the payers generally let the cups go through to billing and then go out to LCMS and they control the tiers on the cups to the LCMS, right? How many drug classes you get to test. But on the amino assay with a physician office lab, they know that most people batch and run those at the end of the day and not while the patient's there. The prescription's walked out the door, so you can't use that as to why you were doing it. So they want you to look at the results before you order the LCMS. There are ways to algorithm that and put in some policies that make that make sense to cut down on the amount of work involved. But you've got to think that through because if you encounter an audit with some of these more aggressive payers, United is a pretty aggressive payer uh, in an audit capacity. Humana can be very aggressive in an audit capacity. And many other smaller plans that aren't major plans, but uh, we've encountered that in the audit work we've done. So here's just a sample for um, POL using uh, 2019 policies and kind of generally giving you what could be an algorithm result from your amino assay to your LCMS that has a little bit of work on your end regarding individualization of patient testing. So this isn't the whole secret, but it's an idea that you can work off of based on what we've discussed today. All right, template. Um, I'm not going to go over that again. Blah, blah, blah. This is risk assessment. This is marrying the earlier lecture with this lecture. And it's allowing you to go through and think things through. It's not that you have to document all this. Don't think that I'm telling you you have to document all this. I'm saying that I'd like you to think it through and then you can come up with a better way of saying why you're doing the testing that you're doing and what kind of testing you need. So this is just an example. Um, these are questions that should be answered or at least you're asking yourself. Does that make sense? This is like a discussion guide for what you end up templating or writing down. Things to think about that are in line with medical necessity. And then here's kind of what I did. Um, this is a basic point for developing a protocol to guide medically necessary testing um, and definitive testing of established patients. So forget the new patient because most people are going to get that right and you're going to need to do more drugs. It's harder to do once you've risk stratified. So typically LCMS on a definitive side. The answer and how you do this depends on whether you did amino assay or presumptive LCMS on the front end. Um, and I try to make those distinctions. So low-risk patient, the typical definitive menu coming off of um, a, an amino assay that the payers will put up with is generally one to seven. They might go on a new patient, you know, allow you right before that eight to 14 classes, and then they may allow you to do it once more. It kind of depends on where you are and how good you are at writing it down. But this is not something to go over right now. I want you to read this on your own because it's, it really requires a little bit of study. But this is an example of how the payer policies break out in frequency. And there's no universal agreement on it. And it's an example of where medical necessity usually is based on what you usually write down in your documentation. Because a lot of people have weaknesses in this area. It's not something we've focused on. And we really need a workshop that walks through page by page on how to do this, and, and it's hard to get the time to do that because that's like a two or three hour thing to really slow down and walk through it. But on a high level, 
This is what's usually approved by the payer. And you can probably look at that and furrow your eyebrows and go, whoa, wait a minute. We have some tests that are ordering up on the high end because we need answers to those questions. But now I understand there's a different um, structure for possible testing and I can ask some questions about it or we can make some changes in our own physician office lab. So you've got to kind of take it for where you are. Um, and so I tried to give some examples here. So timely use, here's the little template thing. And I'm not going to give you the answers. I'm asking you questions so that you can tell me what you would put in your routine category. If a test report comes back, an MA or somebody that has a basic level of training about drug testing could identify those that are routine and don't need to be worried about until the next visit. Does that make sense? You want to decide what that means in your practice. Okay? What is routine? And that's generally that the prescribed drug is present, no unsanctioned drugs are present, and no illicit drugs are present, right? Because a real, you know, here's the other problem in drug testing with POLs, and there's settlements that are coming out on this thing very soon. The, the POLs that don't properly train their staff to handle test reports, they put really untrained people in the interpretive capacity, you're going to have a problem. And you've got to be careful who you delegate to when it comes to some of these higher categories that need triaging, right? Because not everybody's going to understand the results printed on the report, right? Um, they may not appreciate the metabolite issue. They may not appreciate you know, something that's heroin, and unless they can just see it says heroin, and then that goes right to the red bin. Uh, be careful to make sure you've trained your, your people that handle your test results very well on this and continue to update the training, especially in a POL, all right? Because you're getting money on the POL side. That's why it's even more important. But on the just order it from the independent lab side, you still want to do the same thing and have a level of training. Uh, that goes into that. Um, same thing applies with specimen collectors because they need to understand how to translate your order into their lab paperwork. And there's nothing wrong with a specimen collector in most states. There are states that absolutely prohibit it because it's considered a kickback. And it's up to you as to whether you really want one or not, but don't let them walk around your office doing other stuff if the independent lab has supplied it. If they're doing anything other than collecting packaging, you know, in they can do a little basic filing of test reports if their limb system isn't sophisticated, but they can't go dancing around your, your files and trying to decide who's going to get tested. That's your job. And if somebody's paying for an outside collector to be in your office and it, they go and start offering to be super helpful or it's one of your ex, you know, somebody was employed by you and it flipped over, that kind of starts smelling a little different. And there's new law, new federal law that deals with uh, kickbacks in the drug testing area. So that's another lecture, but be very careful. Make sure you ask questions. And if they can't give you a policy on that, what's allowed, what's not allowed, if they don't understand the term ECRA, if they're 1099 people with a lab, you got all kinds of problems potentially coming your way. Um, the, the changes in the law. My, la my uh, battery's cutting out. So decide what means prompt action to you. A phone call doesn't necessarily mean dragging the person in would be a response, but do it in a timely fashion. What kind of results are going to lead to yellow warning flags? And then what kind of results do you want on your template that means we got to act quickly? 
right? And I don't know if you, any of you heard me say that there was a case that I had where the provider wasn't checking the drug test results on a procedure day, and there was a heroin positive sitting in the lab folder. And they didn't have the triage system in place at that time. So she did the procedure, the heroin positive sitting in there. She didn't access that because they don't do that in their procedure suite. Understandable. And um, she didn't know the guy died. And then the board asked her to explain all of this. And she was able to explain it, but most people aren't able to explain it. And so... Um, if you have that as a policy, you do procedures, be very careful about the timing or how somebody calls to your attention a result that's especially critical. And I think most people have a way of doing this, but I want you to think about it in a little more formal fashion because this can get you in trouble on the prescribing side as much as it can cause you issues on the POL side especially. So you can ask yourself questions. Um, here's some other drug, drug testing resources. The CDC's comments on drug testing are the worst set of comments, in my opinion, ever put out there because they told you not to test for marijuana. And I'm not sure how that happened. I think their caveat or their comma explanation was, if you don't know what to do with the results, don't test it. Well, that has some logic to it, but it raised the eyebrows of a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I would expect they're going to retreat from some of this in the newer updates to it. Um, this is the AAPM resource and the American Association for Clinical Chemistry, relatively recent. They don't have the current test methodologies in here. It's, that's how much stuff changes in this area. So they don't necessarily refer to the presumptive LCMS with a lower level tier one. But understand that's completely legitimate as long as this, the, the lab has done it with the right validation and quality assurance, quality, um, whatever else it is, control. Um, that's Gourlay's thing that he spoke about. So there's my, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do it. All right, bear with me while I flip all the way through the end. I wanted to show you my email in case you needed it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And, and pain week, we should all give each other a hand for making it through 2019. Hope to see you again. Thank